This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. All right, everybody, before we start our episode, we have to make a minor correction from two weeks ago. Now, Mike, you weren't here two weeks ago, so Chico made a mispronunciation. Yeah, he made a little error in pronouncing the person who got the first stolen base in the World Series. I think uh, he said it, Kettle Mart, and uh, with all due respect, the guy's name is Kettle Marte. Kettle Marte. Kettle Marte. And if you were a card collector and you were lucky enough to get one of the five Taco Fractor cards of Kettle Marte, you got yourself $15,000 of Taco Bell. That's a lot of chalupas. That's a lot of shitting. Oh! Ow! Well, what does Taco Bell do to you? And That's what it does to me. So congratulations, you're getting your sewers bills worth of pooping. Poopy. I'm going to throw up now. Theme song. An anthology about the bad, the short-lived, and the forgotten shows and events in television history. This is It Was a Thing on TV. I give you Super Train. Episode 427, Submission 322, Doctor Who, The Trial of a Time Lord. Doctor Who, The Trial of a Time Lord, was a season-long arc for the 23rd season of Doctor Who on BBC One from the 6th of September to the 6th of December 1986, which totaled for 14 parts. And that's two episodes shy of the number of episodes of Uncle Croc's Block, the Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle Show, the number of aired episodes of Salvage One, School, Misfits of Science, Tiger King. I'm forgetting some others. Keep going, keep going. I don't remember the others. Okay. Schooled. I said schooled. Okay, then Little Bush. Okay, Little Bush. And J.J. Starbuck? Yes. And I think there's one more, but it's slipping my mind. Let me just go through my mental world addiction. Who? Misfits of Science. He said Misfits of Science. Okay. Okay, so Uncle Crack's Black. Husband Brothers has it as so. J.J. Starbuck, schooled. Number of varied episodes of uh, of Salvage One. Little Bush. Tiger King. There's another one. Who cares? Who cares? Let's talk some Doctor Who, shall we? (laughs) 
Okay. That's a great way to get around the copyright. I love it. You ask me, I think we pretty much nailed that one, Ron Grainer. I think we're not getting sued. Good job. So in the 1980s, Doctor Who was riding high. They had come off their 20th anniversary season in 1983. Of course, the five Doctors, the big anniversary special. But of course, Peter Davison, the fifth Doctor at the time, would be leaving the show in 1984. So in the next to last story of season 21, The Caves of Andranzani, we see the fifth Doctor regenerate into the sixth Doctor, played by Colin Baker. And of course, we all remember that iconic line. It's simple, my dear. Change. And from the looks of it, not a moment too soon. So the sixth Doctor gets one last story to close out the season in the Twin Drama. Not the best Doctor Who story, I believe. So season 22 goes well for Colin Baker's first season. It was reasonably successful. So they changed the length of the episodes in season 22 from 25-minute episodes to 45-minute episodes. However, opposite on Saturday nights on BBC One, Doctor Who drew some big competition from the States. Opposite on ITV, it was running against the A-Team. I don't care who you are. You are not beating Mr. T. And this season was drawing criticism from some critics about the, well, let's just say the, for 1980 standards, the content of some of the episodes might not be uh, kind of like way too scary. Even though if you watch them now, it's like, why would you be even remotely scared about this? I don't know. However, even though Doctor Who was on its way to being a standard on British television going into the 1980s, the controller of BBC One, a man by the name of Michael Grade, was not a fan of the series. And in fact, he admitted in interviews that he, quote-unquote, hated the program and wanted it canceled. So... Doctor Who in 1985 was placed on hiatus. And by the way, for those of you who don't know, Michael Grade, yes, indeed related to Sir Lou Grade, who was controlling ITV a few years back. Doctor Who would be interrupted for an 18-month hiatus between seasons 22 and 23, compared to the usual nine-month gap between seasons. And so, season 23 would air in the autumn of 1986 and was complicated by various factors. Now, the episode length had reverted back from 45 minutes to 25 minutes. However, the number of episodes was reduced to 14, just over half the length of most previous seasons. And the series was still up against the A-Team on ITV. And having been off the air for 18 months, found it hard to regain those viewers that they had lost to the A-Team. 
So the executive producer of Doctor Who, John Nathan Turner, decided for this season to try to get the viewers back to the show. They decided to have an entire season-long arc for season 23 called The Trial of a Time Lord. This is basically the BBC going all in on a high concept for one of their storied franchises. Let me read the synopsis on Truth by Consensus Wikipedia here. In the serial, the Sixth Doctor is tried by the High Council of Time Lords for breaking several of the laws of Gallifrey, the Time Lords' home world, including interference with outside worlds and genocide. A mysterious character called the Valyard acts as prosecutor, in the first two chapters, the mysterious planet and mind warp, events from the Doctor's past and present are submitted as evidence of his guilt. The third chapter, Terror of the Vervoids, presents future events in the Doctor's defense. In the concluding chapter, The Ultimate Foe, the Doctor's trial is halted, and the Doctor confronts the Valyard and his old rival, the Master, in order to clear his name and to save the High Council. So let's talk about the main players of this particular serial. Because if we were going to talk about the entire cast of Doctor Who, we'd be here for years. Obviously, the sixth Doctor, which means we are talking about Colin Baker. This is basically as big as his career gets. Although he was Paul Maroney in the drama series The Brothers on the BBC. Not to be confused with Brothers on Showtime. That's a never cover, by the way. Playing his companion, Perry Brown, is Nicola Bryant, who, and by the way, I'm drawing this up from Wikipedia as well, was actually discovered on a stage production of No No Nanette, where she was affecting an American accent. And the person who spotted her was looking for an American to play Perry Brown. So... This was basically the story of how Hugh Laurie got cast as Heps, basically. Because he did an American accent convincingly. Very convincingly. Oh, by the way, no, no, Nanette. Can't believe we referenced no, no, Nanette without referencing that that's the reason why Babe Ruth got sold to the Yankees in 1920. Because Harry Frizee, the owner of the Red Sox, wanted to finance his play, so he sold Babe Ruth to the Yankees for like a hundred grand. And now you know the rest of the story. And they are only cursed for another eighty six years. As part of her contract, Nicola had to use that fake American in all public places barring the local pop to the supermarket. This is true. Including BBC canteens and rehearsal rooms. She simply got on with it throughout her entire run on the show and later described it as, quote-unquote, the longest role she ever played. Yeah, I believe that. I'm wondering if she was in anything besides Doctor Who. And it turns out, oh yeah, she totally was. She was in Blackadder's Christmas Carol TV film there. Two episodes playing two different characters of My Family, and then something called Star Trek Continues. Oh, that's like that fan film production. 
And then we have as a character named Melody Bush. I believe that's the follow-up companion to Perry Brown. Yeah, in the middle of the run of this season. That would be Bonnie Langford, who was in an episode of Opportunity Knocks from 1970. Two episodes of Surprise, Surprise in 1992 and 1997. But you're forgetting the least, Chico. She was in the movie Bugsy Malone. Who else was in that movie, Greg? Jodie Foster and Scott Mayo. You mean the Scott Mayo from Zapped? <laughs> Never forget, we actually fooled somebody with that Onion article. Someone? I thought we fooled multiple people. No, I thought we just fooled one person when we posted that on the site formerly known as Twitter. We did well. Yes. By the way, Bonnie Langford... Not related to fellow British actress Catherine Langford from 13 Reasons Why. And in recurring roles, we have as the Valyard, Michael Jason, and as the Master, Anthony Ainley. That's right. And you know what that means. We got to talk about the Doctor Who pinball game again, because this mug, Anthony Ainley, was on the freaking table on... The Doctor Who pinball game. Yeah, but when you sink the ball into the master, whatever you want to call it, the the the, the trigger or whatnot, uh, the the lane that uh, sends the ball down to the uh, uh, to, to the base where you lose the ball, was that Anthony Ainley's image that popped up, or was that yeah. Roger Delgado? Oh, I thought that was Roger Delgado. No, all that this was time. Anthony Ainley. Yup. Oh, I thought that was Roger Delgado. Oh, no, wait. He's you might, that... Hold on. You might be right that it's Roger Delgado. I'm not. Well, here's the thing. They look the same. They look the damn same. Roger Delgado, Anthony Ainley, they both have like a must. It's not like today where you have like John Sim. Uh, who else played the match? Eric Roberts. Eric Roberts uh, is the guy that played it recently. Um, the guy from uh, Iron Fist. Oh, yeah. that Sasha, I forget his last name. Sasha Dewan. Sasha Dewan. And, oh, Missy. We can't forget Missy. Oh, uh, Michelle Gomez. Yes. Okay, I'm still saying it's Roger Delgado, but I can totally buy Anthony Ainley because, like you said, they've got the goatee. They look very similar. And I think even the doctor's ages are similar at that point. And then we have, as the Inquisitor, Linda Bellingham, who would go on to be one of the co-hosts of a very popular talk show in the UK, Loose Women, from 2007 until her death in 2014. Loose Women? What the hell is that? It's like The View. Oh, but it's British. But it's British. So what do they talk about on the British version, I guess, of The View. Do they talk about, like, whatever, like, what's-his-face the UK Prime Minister is doing now, or whatever? From Wikipedia, Loose Women is a British talk show that broadcasts on ITV weekdays from 12.30 to 1.30 p.m. The show focuses on a panel of four female presenters who interview celebrities, talk about aspects of their lives, 
and discuss topical issues ranging from politics to current affairs to celebrity gossip and entertainment news. That sounds a lot like the view to me, at least the view over the last, let's say, like five to ten years. Not the view when Barbara Walters was around because she wouldn't want any of that entertainment news gossip bull. Oh, no. She had standards, damn it. And rounding out the cast as Sabalom Glitz is Tony Selby, who was an uncredited fifth hood in the Superman movies. Michael Jason and Linda Bellingham appeared throughout the entire serial, but Tony Selby only appeared in The Mysterious Planet and The Ultimate Foe, while Anthony Ainley's master returned in The Ultimate Foe. All right, so let me get on to this with The Mysterious Planet. Events of the serial are framed on an arching plot that carries through the other three serials of the 23rd season. In this, the Sixth Doctor is forced to land the TARDIS aboard a Gallifreyan space station where he is brought into a courtroom. The Inquisitor informs the Doctor he is on trial for conducting Unbecoming a Time Lord. Evidence will be presented by the Valyard. The first evidence is shown through video footage taken from the Matrix of the Doctor's recent involvement with the planet Ravelox, where the Valyard shows that the Doctor willingly became involved in the affairs of the planet. The Doctor denies these charges as the Valyard brings them. After showing the video, the Valyard affirms he has more evidence sufficient to call for the end of the Doctor's life. As shown by the court evidence, the Doctor and Perry land on Ravelox, both noting a similarity to Earth. The Doctor is aware that Ravelox was devastated by a fireball, according to official records, but the presence of flourishing plant life makes him suspicious. As they walk, they are observed by Salbalom, Glitz, and Dibber. Mercenaries on the planet attempting to destroy a quote-unquote black light generator in order to destroy the L3 robot deep underground that it powers. The Doctor and Perry find a tunnel and enter to find remains that appear to be that of the Marble Arch tube station of the London Underground Central Line. Piking the Doctor's curiosity further, the Doctor wishes to proceed deeper, but Perry is worried and stays behind. Perry is soon captured by a local human tribe led by Katricia and brought to their camp. Katricia informs Perry that she will need to take many husbands for the tribe and locks her away with Glitz and Dibber. The two were captured after approaching the tribe to try to convince them to let them destroy the generator, which the tribe has taken as a totem. The three managed to overpower the guards and escape, but not before planting a bomb on the black light generator. They are pursued by the tribe. The Doctor, in exploring the modern underground complex, is also captured by humans under watch by the Immortal. He is brought before the Immortal, the L3 robot that Glitz is looking for. The robot calls itself Drothero and is following its instructions to maintain the habitat of the underground system. Drothero orders the Doctor to make necessary repairs, but the Doctor manages to temporarily electrify the robot and make his escape. Drothero sends a service robot after the Doctor. Perry, Glitz, and Dipper eventually meet up with the Doctor back at the ruins of Marble Arch, trapped between the tribe and the service robot. However, the tribesmen disable the service robot and recapture the group, including the Doctor. The Doctor tries to explain the nature of the tribe's totem, but Katrisa is unimpressed and places them in a cell again. While there, Glitz confirms that Ravelox is actually Earth. Drothero reactivates the service robot and sends it into the tribe's village 
to recapture the doctor, but the tribe is able to disable it again. Katrisa decides that they should attack Trothero's castle to steal its technology from themselves. The doctor and Perry use the opportunity to escape and re-enter the underground complex, aware that the black light generator is now damaged beyond repair and it should self-destruct. It could take the whole universe with it. Katrisa and the tribe are easily defeated by Drothero. When the doctor arrives, he attempts to plead for Drothero to shut himself down in order to disable the black light system, but Drothero refuses. Glitz, Dibber, and Perry arrive after being detained by Drothero and Glitz, offers to take the robot aboard his ship, which has a functioning black light system. Drothero agrees and departs with the mercenaries. The doctor finds the black light system is already beginning to self-destruct and reconfigures the system so that its explosion would be limited to the underground complex. The doctor, Perry, and the other humans living underground escape in time. The remains of the tribe offer to take those and those humans that were living underground, and the doctor and Perry say their goodbyes. Why would the Time Lords go to all this trouble to move Earth several million light years from its original position? I don't know. You got me. And now we get into the second serial, Mind Warp. Mind Warp is framed by the trial of the Sixth Doctor, prosecuted by the Valyard, accusing him of meddling in other species' affairs in a way unbecoming of a Time Lord. The Valyard provides evidence to the preceding Inquisitor via screen link to the Matrix showing the details of the Doctor's actions on the planet Thoros Beta. The bulk of the episode centers on recorded narrative. As shown by the video, the Doctor and Perry arrive on Thoros Beta. The Doctor's curiosity peaked on the availability of advanced weaponry by the warlords of Thordon as they explore a cave system. The Doctor discovers Sill, an arms dealer for the mentors that are supplying the weapons. Now, Sill is a character I should note that the Doctor and Perry encountered in a previous serial in Season 22. Sill is a mentor from Thoros Beta and the representative of the Galatron Mining Corporation on the planet Veros. He lied about the value of Zaton 7 to get the cheapest price for it and was also interested in buying and distributing recordings of the various tortures which passed for entertainment on Veros. But that was basically one of his many unethical business schemes during the 21st, 23rd, and 24th centuries. Exploring further, the Doctor and Perry find that scientist Crozier in Sill's employ is attempting to perfect the ability to transplant the brilliant mind of Kiv, Sill's superior, into another body to overcome Kiv's pending death. When discovered, the two make their escape with the warlord King Yor... Oh god, I'm gonna mispronounce this. Yorkanos. Yorkanos, okay. One of Crozier's test subjects. The Doctor, Perry, and... Yorkanos. And his men plan an attack on Sill, but the Doctor betrays them by abandoning them at the last minute and wardens the mentors, causing Perry and... Yorkanos. To flee in different directions. Perry happens across one of the mentor's servant women and with her help disguises herself to get close to the doctor. The doctor reveals Perry to the mentors and requests he be allowed to interrogate her alone. A request still allows. Away from the others, the doctor tells Perry his betrayal was all a ploy to learn more of Sill's plan and has discovered that they will transplant Kiv's mind into his body if he does not cooperate. Crozier interrupts the interrogation, believing he can extract 
more information from Perry. But then your Canos arrives, ready to kill the doctor. Perry stops your Canos, and together they escape, regrouping with your Canos men. As Kiv's body is dying, Crozier is forced to transplant his brain with the doctor's help into the body of one of the mentor's servants, keeping the mind alive but affected by the simple thoughts of the former consciousness. Your Canos. Perry and his men launch another attack, this time on a weapon stash, but are stunned and captured. Sill and Crozier decide to use Perry as a more suitable body for Kiv's brain, despite the doctor's objections. As the operation is being prepared, the doctor sneaks away and frees Urkanos, urging him on Perry's safety. Perry is strapped down and gagged as the operation is prepared, and Crozier gives the order for her head to be shaven. The doctor attempts to return to save her, but is suddenly drawn hypnotically into the TARDIS, which appears in the hallway. It is later revealed that he traveled directly to his trial from that point, despite the doctor claiming that the Time Lord's interference has put Perry's life in danger. The Valyard rebuffs this, stating that the doctor shouldn't have become involved in the first place, and Perry's life is the cost of his involvement. Events on Thoros Beta continue after the doctor's removal, as it is shown that Urkanos was placed in a time bubble by the Time Lords to hold his arrival back at the lab until after Kiv's mind was successfully transplanted into Perry. When Urkanos is freed of the bubble, he is distraught at the results of the operation and fires wildly, killing Perry. The Valyard insists that the interference of the Time Lords was to prevent a greater disaster befalling the universe due to the mistakes in the Doctor's actions. The Doctor insists that the present trial appears to be serving as an ulterior motive and resolves to determine what it is as the trial continues. Now, Chico, playing King... Urkanos? ...is Brian Blessed. Do you have any information on Brian Blessed? Have I ever. One of his most notable roles in science fiction lore was in Space 1999 and... Oh, this is going to be great. Prince Voltam in Flash Gordon and Boss Nass in Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Oh, that's terrific. He played Boss Nass in The Phantom Menace. I also want to say, because... He's still working now. He was the narrator in the British version, I guess, reversion, the reversion of Unbeatable Bunzuke. What the hell is Unbeatable Bunzuke? Uh, do you remember Master of Champions uh, from a few summers ago with uh, Chris Larry on ABC? No. It's sort of like that. It's a Japanese game show. Rome Conda hosted it for G4. It was basically a bunch of people taking up challenges to land on the list of champions, the Banzuke. Its greatest legacy, it gave the world Ninja Warrior. Well, let's get into the third serial, Terror of the Vervoids. At the courtroom, the Doctor takes to the stand in his defense and uses the Matrix to show the Time Lords his tale of events of how he saved everyone on board the freighter Hyperion 3. On board the Hyperion 3, communication officer Edwards is attacked by an unseen creature. Before he dies, he sends a distress call to a nearby ship, the Tortoise. The Doctor and his new companion, Mel Bush, 
follow the message to the freighter, where they meet a trio of scientists, Professor Lasky and her colleagues Bruckner and Doland. The group is guarding a shipment of Demeter seeds and some large flower pods. While investigating, the doctor and Mel find a half-human, half-plant hybrid strapped to a table. What? What? A half-human, half-plant hybrid. So basically the hibiscus on the Masked Singer. That would be something on the Masked Singer, a half-human, half-plant. By the way, breaking news. This is CNN Breaking News. Countess Luanne Lesseps as unmasked as the hibiscus on the masked singer this week. Who? One of the real housewives. Oh. She's no uh Kyle Richards or the one who yelled at Smudge. Kyle Richards was the one who yelled at Smudge. No, Kyle Richards was not the one who yelled at Smudge. She was holding the woman who yelled at Smudge back. That's Kim Richards. I think you're mixing them up. I think No, that's Ky- it was not. I know. I watched it today. You actually watched a Real Housewives something something? I watched the clip. And you're not going to believe this, Mike. You're not going to believe this. It turns out that Smudge was not in the video. This We thought that she was actually yelling at the cat. It was just the meme. No, you really thought she was yelling at the cat? No. I, th- I thought she was yelling at the cat all this time. So she's not yelling at a cat? No. She's yelling probably at another housewife because who knows? Maybe looked at her the wrong way or something or had better nails or who knows? The creature implores them to stop Lasky, but Lasky, Bruckner, and Dolan sedate her. Dolan tells the time travelers that the creature is his assistant, Ruth Baxter. During their experiments involving cross-fertilization, pollen penetrated a scratch in Ruth's thumb causing the resulting plant mutating process to partially transform her human body. They are taking her to Earth in the hope that they can reverse the infection. It is revealed that the Edwards and others were killed by plant-like creatures called vervoids, the creatures that came out of the pods when Edwards was electrocuted. Bruckner goes to the bridge and forces Travers and the pilot to leave, then changes the course of the Hyperion to head into the Black Hall of Tartarus, planning to destroy the ship and kill the vervoids. The Doctor, Lasky, and Travers attempt to break into the bridge, but the vervoids have filled it with marsh gas. Bruckner is killed by the gas, but the ship is still heading into the black hole. Security officer Rudge summons two Morgarian crew members as they can breathe in the poisonous atmosphere. They direct the ship away from the black hole, but when it is safe, Rudge and the Morgarians hijack the ship Rudge tells the doctor that the Morgarians are trying to regain the supply of metal stored in the vault. Rudge is taking the hijacking as a means of securing a more comfortable retirement. The doctor of Mel, Travers, and Lasky meet to discuss the vervoids. The doctor reveals that the vervoids hate animal kind and kill for survival. Lasky vows to help destroy the creatures. The doctor has an idea that Vionesium, the rare metal taken from Morgur, stored in the ship's vault would accelerate the vervoid's life cycle towards its natural end. Travers lowers the lighting and heating in the ship, forcing the vervoids back to their lair, where the Doctor and Mel are waiting. They deploy the metal against the vervoids, which causes the creature's leaf-covered bodies to die. 
having saved the survivors, the Doctor and Mel, the Port and the Tortoise. Back in the courtroom, upon viewing these events in the Matrix, the Valyard considers the Doctor's destruction of the Vervoids as genocide and pleads for the Time Wards to seek the death penalty against the Doctor. Uh oh. Uh oh. In stereo, beautiful. Yo, know, you should also do. You should also have like Susan and like Patty Duke together in stereo, and and then maybe have Teresa Merritt comment on that little mistake. Uh oh. Uh oh. No, Teresa Merritt. You get the introduction of a new uh oh sound. It's Alf. He's back in pog form. Big name playing Doctor Lasky in that episode. Honor Blackman. Oh yes. Pussy galore. Who could ever forget James Bond's response? Oh, I must be dreaming. <laughs> but also, she was on the original Avengers. As Catherine Gale. I believe she was on before um, Emma Peel and Diana Rigg. Yes. Now we're going into the grand conclusion of this. The ultimate foe. The Sixth Doctor boldly claims the Valyard's evidence has been falsified and the Matrix has been tampered with. The Keeper of the Matrix insists this is impossible. Glitz and Mel arrive unexpectedly in the courtroom. The Master appears on the Matrix screen to claim responsibility and demonstrate it's possible to breach the Matrix. At the Master's insistence, Glitz reveals the data he tried to obtain on Ravelox included technological secrets from the Matrix which was stolen by the Sleepers. The Time Wards traced the Sleepers to their base on Earth and dragged the planet across space to the location in which the Doctor found it, nearly annihilating all life on the planet in the process. The Master explains the Valyard is a manifestation of the Doctor's darker side somewhere between the Doctor's 12th and final incarnation, which, knowing modern Doctor Who, could mean somewhere between Peter Cabaldi and Jodie Whittaker. I know, well, but considering he got, like, another set of lives, it could mean, like, anything. No, no. Because remember, it was thrown off by the War Doctor in John Hurt. So it was somewhere between Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi. Oh, who knows? I don't know anything. The continuity makes no sense. The continuity is what the writers needed to be at the time. The High Council offered the Valyard the Doctor's remaining regenerations in exchange for falsifying evidence. When the Doctor demands to halt the trial as he cannot be both the defendant and prosecutor, the Valyard flees into the Matrix, a virtual reality where normal logic does not apply. So it's somewhere in the metaverse? Sure, why not? The Doctor pursues with Glitz, emerging next to a building labeled The Fantasy Factory, Proprietor J.J. Chambers, a clerk named Mr. Popplewick, sends them to a deserted wasteland. To the doctor's horror, hands emerge from the ground and grab him, dragging him underground. Glitz is unable to rescue him, but the doctor rises from the ground unharmed, insisting correctly that nothing that happens in the Matrix is real. The Valyard appears and taunts the doctor before unleashing nerve gas, forcing the doctor and Glitz to take refuge in a rundown cottage as they stumble inside it, dematerializes into the Master's tortoise. The Master reveals that he wishes the Doctor to prevail over the Valyard, since he fears the Valyard's ability to defeat him 
he puts the doctor into a catatonic state and sends him out of his TARDIS to lure the Valyard out of hiding. The Valyard emerges onto a balcony, but fires upon the master, forcing him to flee. Mel emerges from a tunnel, and the doctor, recognizing her voice, emerges from his trance. She leads him out of the Matrix and into the trial room. They agree that she should tell the truth, and she confirms to the court that the scenes of the Vervoid's destruction, the basis of the Valyard's charge of genocide, are as she witnessed them. The Inquisitor finds the doctor guilty and declares that his life is forfeit. He accepts the verdict as the fulfillment of justice and is led off to execution. However, this is another illusion. Mel is frantic that the doctor needs help, grabbing the keeper's key and entering the Matrix. She finds the doctor and warns him, but he had already realized the courtroom was a fake and merely wished to reach a final confrontation with the Valyard. Bribed by the Master, Glitz returns to the Fantasy Factory, and he finds the Master tape of the data he thought was destroyed on Ravelox. Glitz escapes with the data to the Master's TARDIS, while the Doctor asks Popplewick for chambers. Popplewick doesn't comply. The Doctor and Mel lay hold of him, and the Doctor peels away his face to reveal Popplewick as a disguised Valier. They realize that a concealed machine in the room is a particle disseminator, with which the Valyard plans to murder the members of the court. The Inquisitor learns that the High Council has been deposed. The Master appears on the Matrix screen to offer to impose order in return for power. He loads Glitz's Master tape into his tortoise systems, but a booby trap is triggered, paralyzing him and Glitz. Mel emerges from the Matrix to warn the Time Lords. They cannot turn off the Matrix screen, but the Doctor sabotages the Valyard's weapon and the Fantasy Factory explodes. He flees the Matrix back to the courtroom. The Inquisitor drops the charges against him and reveals that Perry survived the events on Thoros Beta and became... Draconos. Queen. She urges the Doctor to stand for Lord President of the New Council, but he suggests she should stand. He urges the Time Lords to be lenient towards Glitz while he returns Mel back to her proper time. As the Inquisitor leaves the trial room, she gives instructions to the Keeper of the Matrix. As he looks up at the camera, he is revealed to be the Valyard. Dun dun dun! <laughs> and because Greg did not say it in the taping, I am just gonna bring this moment between the Doctor and Mel up. Calibre Bray doesn't have any crown juice. Right, a bracing glass of carrot juice. Carrot juice? And then we'll get you back on the exerciser. You know, I think I was rash in turning down that offer of the presidency. Oh, carrot juice. Carrot juice, carrot juice, carrot juice. Okay, but there's some weird stuff I got to share about the uh, production of this on Truth by Consensus Wikipedia. So, Doctor Who writer Robert Holmes was originally commissioned to write the final two episodes of the story. However, he died from a chronic liver ailment after completing a draft of the first episode and left nothing beyond a plot outline for the second episode. So Eric Saward, the series script editor, resigned around this time due to disagreements with producer John Nathan Turner, but he agreed to write the final episode based on Holmes' outline and rewrote Holmes' draft to tie the two episodes together for which he was credited as script editor. 
Much of the original draft written by Holmes, involving, as it did, a reenactment of one of the Whitechapel murders, described to Jack the Ripper, was felt to be unsuitable, and most of the material set in the Matrix in this episode, credited to Holmes, is in fact Salward's work. The original ending to the segment as a whole, and indeed the whole trial story and possibly the series, would have seen the Doctor and the Valyard in an inconclusive cliffhanger, both plunging into a void to their deaths as an extra hook. However, Nathan Turner felt it was too damn beat and believed that it was important that the season did not end on an inconclusive note to demonstrate the series was back in business and avoid providing an excuse to BBC management to cancel the series altogether. Saward refused to change the ending and withdrew permission to use his script very late in the day, by which point the production team had been assembled and the segment was entering rehearsals. John Nathan Turner would commission Pip and Jan Baker to write a replacement final episode. For copyright reasons, they could not be told anything of the content of Sourd's script, and there were lawyers observing all the commissioning meetings. The only similarity between the two is the announcement that the High Council of the Time Lords resigned, which was a natural development of the scripts. The new script ended on an optimistic note with the Doctor departing for new adventures in keeping with this more optimistic stance. Nathan Turner decided to amend the script at the last minute to show Perry had not died as shown in Mind Warp, but had in fact survived and became Dracanos? Warrior Queen. Her apparent death was part of the values tampering with the Matrix. A shot from the earlier story was used to show this. Nicola Bryant was absolutely disappointed to learn how the fate of her character had been changed. The working title of this story was Time Incorporated, and this title did not appear in the final scripts or on screen. Although the other episodes of this season were the usual 25 minutes in length, it proved impossible to edit the final episode down to that length. So John Nathan Turner applied for and received special permission for the episode to run five minutes over its scheduled time slot, making it a 30-minute episode. What a mess. And by this time, it seems like the production of Doctor Who as a whole was in complete and utter disarray because of various reasons, including the death of Robert Holmes. Everybody disagreed with John Nathan Turner. And then the whole thing with uh, the show being on hold for a year and a half. So what else happened? Because we know this isn't the end of classic Doctor Who. Because 1987 would bring Time and the Ronnie and, of course, Sylvester McCoy wearing a stupid-looking blonde wig. Yeah, after the BBC fired Colin Baker. And they freaking, uh... That was the stupidest freaking scene ever. But yeah, Doctor Who, it lasted for another three seasons with Sylvester McCoy. Until the series... Well, the series was not officially cancelled. It was just like the BBC was like, well, we'll just wait until we commission a new season, which went into like 90 and 91, 90. You get the picture, right? Yeah. Until the TV movie, which we previously covered in 96. So Doctor Who was never in the 60 years that it existed officially canceled. They just decided in 2005, you know what we should do? We should produce Doctor Who again. With Blackjack and hookers. And they got Russell T. Davies to executive produce the series in 2005. And Chris Eccleston to play the Doctor. 
they almost went with Eddie Izzard, believe it or not. Really? I read something about that. You know what? I got to be honest. They made the good call there, Chris Eccleston. And then a year later, David Tennant joined the show, and, well, it's still going today. But in 1986, Doctor Who, The Trial of a Time Lord, oh, boy. It was a mess, but it made for one really weird season of Doctor Who, and it ultimately became a thing on TV and a thing on PBS. If you want to relive The Trial of a Time Lord, they rerun it, I believe, on the classic Doctor Who channel on Pluto TV, or you could watch it on demand. And if you are in the UK and have access to iPlayer, I believe that's going to be part of the Hooniverse coming up. Oh yeah, the new Hooniverse app. I can confirm I have seen Talon Baker episodes on the classic Doctor Who channel on Pluto TV. That's right, because they do have the classic Doctor Who channel. And is any of those on demand, the classic Doctor Who channel? It runs often enough, though. Uh, if it's not on demand, I've seen it, uh, I think, uh, once or twice, and I'm a, just a casual watcher. I don't watch it uh, all that often. But I've seen uh, Colin Baker, his doctor, pass away and get regenerated into Sylvester McCoy. So they have shown that season. And that is terrible, right? That seed. You know, honestly, I think all of Colin Baker and Doctor Who is terrible. Although, I, I, I know you don't listen to Big Finish, but his Doctor Who Big Finish stuff is very good in the audio. I'm going to be fair. Okay, I think I've declared that my favorite Doctor is Tom Baker, and I think that's sort of... Oh, that's obvious. Everyone... Well, well, yeah, I mean, that's where I think a lot of us got exposure on PBS back in the day, seeing Tom Baker and and I was absolutely floored. When was it? It couldn't have been like eight years ago, seven years ago, when he appeared in that museum scene after, uh, who, which doctor Man, was it? Man, it was the 50th doctor? anniversary special. Oh, the 50th? Oh, that was 10 years ago? Oh my yeah, gosh. it's 10 years ago already. Dang. But yeah, that final like scene in the museum and he shows up, it's like, no, they didn't just get Tom Baker to show up. That is so damn cool. I saw that in the theater because they had a special Fathom event for it. And I got to say, the two biggest pops in the theater was that scene of Peter Cabaldi's eyes. You remember that scene, Chico? Yep, I do remember that scene. They have 12 TARDISes. No, 13. But not only that, but when Tom Baker appeared, everyone went like insane for that. I could picture that. I know I went absolutely crazy when that happened. And I was watching it on the, um, I believe it was the afternoon where they were basically offering it up as an all-worlds premiere where everyone was watching it in the world at the same time. And I believe that set a Guinness World Record for the most popular telecast on television Everyone in the world was watching Doctor Who at the same time. Even me as a casual flipped out. That's how big it was. Well, you know what? 
Russell T. Davies decided, you know what, for the 60th anniversary, you know what, I'm going to get to top that NPH. David Tennant and Neil Patrick Harris. Come on, Disney Plus, get with it already. Now that Doctor Who is going to be on Disney Plus in America, I guarantee you we're going to have like all the Doctor Who stuff that we could ever imagine. You know what? Russell T. Davies just surprised me with whatever you have planned. Give us what you got. We're ready for it. Wow! I'm sick of it. I watched my friend for a year and a half going through so much Be her friend. You be each other. I have been her friend. I have never heard her. No. I have never heard her. Take her phone off. I have never heard her. I'm sorry. Here's where we need to put a picture of Benoodles eating broccoli. Greg, repeat after me. Your Kanos. Your Kanos. Your Kanos. Your Kanos. Not my Kanos. Your Kanos. Your Kanos. Say it again now. Your Kanos. So, do you really need Chico to say your Kanos throughout the entirety of the episode? Oh, you'll just edit that in. No, no. I, I wanted to give you a. A vocal lesson here. I wanted oh, okay. to hear you actually say your Kanos, and I- I'm glad you did. Now okay. say Demeter. Demeter. Episode 428, Submission 1125, The Missing Episodes of Doctor Who. The Missing Episodes of Doctor Who involve 97 missing episodes from the first 253 episodes of Doctor Who that aired on BBC One between 1963 and 1969. So, okay, 97 missing episodes. How many crock blocks is that? That, by my math, just doing it out the top of my head, and this isn't being edited, so this is like real time, that would be six crock blocks plus one episode. So we're missing six crock blocks plus one other missing episode. That would be 97. So that's six crock blocks and a you're in the picture. Got it. God, I wish we didn't have you're in the picture. No, it's not six crock blocks and a you're in the picture. It's six crock blocks and one the rich list. 
That's another it, show I wish was missing. It's six crock blocks and double the number of episodes of Turn On that aired. That's not true because they finally got around to airing the second one on YouTube. No, no, that, that one did not air. In most of the country, if not the entire country, 15 minutes, it was yanked. So double the number of episodes, if you will, or assuming it's a half an episode. But I think we're arguing about semantics here. There's a lot of episodes that went missing. So Doctor Who is a relatively popular show in Britain in the first six years between 1963 and 1969. And really, the beginnings of Doctor Who, I mean, Chico, we have William Hortnell the first three seasons, and then we have him replaced by Patrick Troughton. And it lays a groundwork for what's to come later on in the rest of the run, when in 1970, it goes from black and white to color when John Pertwee becomes the third Doctor. And, of course, a lot of the things that we see as standards on Doctor Who, they come out of this era. We have the companions, people who find their way to the TARDIS and are stuck in adventures in space and time, the aliens, the monsters, the educational dilemmas, a guy who solves problems using his brain instead of his muscle. All of these things we see as standard in 2023. And, of course, what we know now is that this has built up a worldwide following and has gone on to be one of the classic stories in all of science fiction to rival Star Trek, Star Wars. And that's it, really. Yeah, Star Trek, Star Wars, Doctor Who. Well, I get maybe uh, Marvel, although Marvel's not really a television problem. Well, no, technically they is because of Disney+. Plus. So what happens when you go back into the archives and discover there's a huge chunk of history missing? Before we go into the episodes, we have to tell you how TV worked back in the early days. Yeah, because back in the day, like, you just record the show, it would air, and that was it. I mean, maybe it would get repeated once in a while but other than it repeating once that was pretty much it yeah it would you know you'd record the show it would stay on the shelf but you only have so much film and videotape so what do we do we have to record something and we have to record it on something what are we supposed to do the bbc like other broadcasters of the era decided on a very controversial practice. They wiped everything. So every Doctor Who master episode that was on videotape from this period was completely wiped. However, now this is key, we go back to our old friend, the Kinescope, where you would film something on a TV and record it and put it on film. Now, the BBC would do this practice because they would syndicate this show overseas to other countries that might have been interested in wanting episodes of Doctor Who. Most notably the CBC and PBS. 
Yes, and also the ABC out in Australia that we talked about last week, and many countries in Africa and many countries in Asia that were interested in hearing some Doctor Who. I know Japan was big on Doctor Who. And of course, Doctor Who was big in South America, where it aired under the title Doctor Mysterio. So the engineering department at the BBC back then had no mandate to archive the videotapes they had. Although typically they would not be wiped or junked until the relevant production department or BBC Enterprises indicated that they had no further use for the tapes. An example is the first Doctor Who master videotapes that were wiped were those for the serial The Highlanders, which were erased on the 9th of March 1967, a mere two months after the transmission for the final episode in episode four. Despite the destruction of these master tapes, the BBC had an almost complete archive with the possible exception of the Daleks master plan, which we'll get to in a bit. There's a reason why they probably didn't have it in the form of 16 millimeter film telerecording copies until approximately 1972. From around 1972 to 1978, BBC Enterprises also disposed of much of their older material, including many episodes of Doctor Who. The final 1960s telerecordings to be junked were those for the 1966 serial The War Machines. In early 1978, before the junking of material was halted by the intervention of Doctor Who superfan Ian Levine. Enterprises episodes were usually junked because their rights agreements with the actors and writers to sell the program abroad had expired. Everything's going to color. All the agreements with the actors and writers for the airings of the episodes for them getting paid have expired. So they figure, okay, well, there's probably no more use for this. Well, we might as well use the videotapes to put, I don't know, uh... What did the BBC have in, like, 1979? I couldn't even begin to tell you. Newer episodes of Doctor Who. Was Bruce Forsyth doing anything in 1979 on the BBC? I can't imagine he wasn't doing anything on the BBC in 1979. I have a couple of series that debuted on BBC in 1979. First... Blankety blank, so match game. But second, a show that's still airing nowadays Antiques Roadshow. What? Antiques Roadshow started in 1979 on BBC One. I didn't know that. I thought it was newer. February 18th of 1979. BBC was junking tapes as far as 1979, it would appear. Yes. So in the years that the BBC archive was first audited around 1978, a number of episodes then absent have been returned of Doctor Who from various sources. So when the BBC audited its library in 1977, they found only 47 episodes of Doctor Who were found to exist. And these copies were of a random sampling of viewing prints for various episodes along with seven of the nine episodes that had originally been telerecorded onto film for editing and or transmission rather than recorded to videotape. 
The film library's remit covers material originated on film and not on videotape. Yet two of the film originated episodes of Doctor Who, The Power of the Daleks Episode 6 and The Wheel in Space Episode 5, were junked by the film library while it held such unexplained material as 16mm copies of The Tenth Planet Episodes 1 through 3. Now, The Tenth Planet is most notably the final Doctor Who serial that has William Hortnell as the first Doctor. The film library also held high-quality original film sequences made for insertion into videotaped episodes. Some of these, such as those from episodes 1 and 2 of the Daleks' master plan, survive to this day. Other junk sequences were mistakenly entered into a film library computer system, leading to an impression that they had existed for some years afterward, and inaccurate speculation that the BBC was still destroying some clips well into the early 1980s. Now, in 1978, the aforementioned Ian Levine located another 65 episodes from the show's first six seasons, plus 14 previously existing episodes, at the BBC Enterprises Film Vault at Villers House in London. The episodes comprised of 17 full serials, mostly from seasons 1 and 2, and according to Levine, the Prince of the Daleks were flagged to be junked that very day. But he saved them. Yes, he did. Levine also alerted the new film and videotape library's archive selector, Sue Bolden, who paid her own visit to Villers House and found everything remaining John Pertley episode, albeit as 16mm black-and-white telerecording, except for two from his final season, Death to the Daleks and Invasion of the Daleks, Episodes 1. In August 1988, ten years after Levine and Malden's visits, Episodes 1 and 4 through 6 of the six-part story, The Ice Warriors, were discovered in a cupboard at Villers' house when the corporation was in process of moving out of the building. They were just literally found on a cupboard. Isn't that where you'd keep 16-millimeter film? I keep my 16-millimeter film in a cupboard. Now, shortly after the junking process was halted, the BBC established its film and videotape library for the purposes of storage and preservation. Sue Malden began to audit what material remained in the BBC's stores. When investigations revealed large gaps in the collection, Malden turned her inquiries to the National Film and Television Archive, which promptly returned three full Second Doctor serials, The Dominators, The Crotines, and The War Games, which is the second Doctor's final serial, which is like, I believe it's like 10 episodes of the War Games. It's like five or six hours long or something. It's like, really? It's, it's nuts. It's nuts. If you ever see that on the Doctor Who Classic channel on Pluto. And yes, you have I have. Like, yeah, if you have five or six hours to kill, watch that. So that added seven more episodes and completing two of those serials. They were all standard 16mm film telerecordings, with the exception of The Dominators Episode 3, which was a 35mm print. Episodes 4 and 5 of The Dominators originated from a foreign broadcaster and had been slightly edited. The missing footage was restored later through a mix of sensor clips from Australia and more complete prints that were held by private collectors. Yeah, Australia had a habit of censoring certain scenes from Doctor Who a lot back in the 60s. So the BBC then appealed to broadcasters in other countries who had shown the program previously, because as I mentioned, 
the BBC would film these telerecordings and ship them off to other countries, like notably, as we mentioned, Canada or in African nations to show. And then once they were done with them, they'd just give the copies back to the BBC or whatever, or they would keep them and do whatever with them. Because I believe uh, for a while, uh, the BBC was co-producing the show with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in an agreement that I can't even begin to unpack. Though, out of this process, the BBC would get back from Asia Television in Hong Kong in 1992, The Tomb of the Cybermen, which was the first serial from the fifth season of Doctor Who from September 2nd to 23rd of 67, The Tomb of the Cybermen. So, looking on Truth by Consensus Wikipedia, I'm looking at all the serials that were purchased right here. There's a list of each country and what network they have. We have Australia, Barbados, Bermuda, Canada, Cyprus, Ethiopia, West Germany, uh, Kenya, all bunch of countries. So Australia, they returned five episodes. Canada returned 31. Cyprus returned three. Hong Kong mentioned two of the Cybermen. They returned four. New Zealand has returned one. Nigeria, 15. And Dubai has returned one episode. And it says right here, Nigerian television has been a particularly fruitful source for episode recovery, as a total of 15 of the 50 episodes recovered since 1978 have been reclaimed from Nigeria, including the completion of three full serials, The Time Metal or The War Machines, and The Enemy of the World in 2013. In October of 1984, Ian Levine found the former New Zealand copies of The Watcher, A Battle of Wits, and Checkmate, along with another copy of The Meddling Monk, which already existed in the BBC's archives, and the former New Zealand copies of Episodes 1, 3, and 4 of The War Machines, along with another copy of Episode 2 in the RKTV archive in Nigeria, meaning the Time Meddler and the War Machines were finally complete. In October of 1984, copies of A Land of Fear, Guests of Madame Guillotine, and A Change of Identity, along with another copy of Prisoners of Conciergerie, which was already found in 1982, were found in Cyprus. They were duly returned early in 1985, and the recovery was formally announced in July of that year. Cyprus did not screen the Reign of Terror, as broadcast ended with the showing of Episode 6 of The Censorites on November 25, 1966. As a result of these episode recoveries, only two episodes, Parts 4 and 5 of The Tyrant of France and A Bargain of Necessity, remain missing. Although copies of these episodes have also been held in Cyprus, they were destroyed during the 1974 Turkish invasion of Cyprus. For the 2013 DVD release, episodes 4 and 5 were animated by Planet 55 Studios and Big Finish Productions. And in 1985, during the routine examination of its film archive, the ABC in Australia found a 16mm print copy of The Final Test from the Celestial Toymaker in Australia when the film copy was returned to the BBC. It was discovered that the next episode caption had been removed. Because remember how like the episodes and like the first Doctor's run were all like they had episode titles. Yeah. 
It'd be like next episode they go to like some like I don't know some some place some place. And of course, as I mentioned in 1991, Hong Kong returned the Tomb of the Cybermen. Most recently, in October of 2013, a BBC press conference announced the return of 11 episodes, including two previously existing episodes, from a television relay station in the city of Just Nigeria. In the course of his work abroad, Philip Morris of Television International Enterprise Archives had discovered episodes 1 through 6 of The Enemy of the World and episodes 1 through 6 of The Web of Fear and returned 11 of these to the BBC. Episode 3 of The Web of Fear had been part of the find, but by the end of protracted negotiations for the return of the film cans, the episode had disappeared from the cachet, with the presumption that it was sold to a private collector. The return of the nine missing episodes was the single largest recovery of Doctor Who episodes in 25 years, resulting in only the second full serial from Patrick Troughton's first two seasons to be restored to the BBC. Both serials were promptly released on iTunes with DVD releases falling over the next couple of months. On both the iTunes and the DVD release, episode three of The Web of Fear was represented by a telesnap reconstruction. Some of these episodes that don't have, like, visuals. Now, I should note, all the episodes of Doctor Who, the audio soundtracks to every episode survive, thanks to, like, fans that recorded it onto, like, audio tape back in the day. And they've all been, like, remastered and everything. So we have the audio for all the episodes, but we're missing the visuals for like at least 97 of them. So it would be left for various houses to employ various methods of reconstructing all of the action. Now, I should note one thing. The Daleks Master Plan, this was the one serial from Doctor Who that was never sold abroad, and only Australia requested like viewing copies to watch to see if it was like we're going to watch it and see if this is all right or not for us to air and they said no nah, it's not all right so despite it not being sold overseas three of the serial's 12 episodes because this was like a 12 episode epic the Daleks master plan Episodes 5 and 10 were returned to the BBC in 1983. There were 16 millimeter copies. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, they were found like in a Mormon church somewhere. All right. This is from the subreddit Today I Learned. Episodes 5 and 10 of the 1960s Doctor Who story, The Daleks Master Plan, were long considered missing until they were found in the basement of a Mormon church in Wandsworth. Nobody, to this date, has found out how they got there. Lesson to be learned. If you're near a Mormon church, just ask, do you have like any like film anywhere? And can I just look and check to see if you have like the other episodes of the Daleks Master Plan hidden around somewhere? But the third episode of this serial that was found, episode two, was returned in 2004 by former BBC engineer Francis Watson. He had come across the film in the 1970s 
while clearing a projector testing room at the BBC's Ealing Studios. Instead of deposing the film as instructed, he brought it home eventually to return it to the BBC when he realized the value of the material. And in 1975, so we're going to get to Galaxy 4 and the Underwater Menace here, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation returned all eight broadcast prints of Galaxy 4 and the Underwater Menace to the BBC to be disposed of. In the 1980s, Terry Burnett, a former ITV engineer, purchased Episode 3 of Galaxy 4 and Episode 2 of the Underwater Menace from another collector, unaware of their value. The only existent episode of the former serial in Galaxy 4 and one of just two from the Underwater Menace. In December of 2011, after a chance encounter with a Doctor Who restoration team member, Ralph Montague, Burnett returned the episodes to the BBC. What follows is a list of all the missing stories, accurate as of the time we are recording this, the 10th of November 2023. We have all of the episodes of Marco Polo, part of season one. Episodes 4 and 5 of The Reign of Terror, also part of Season 1. Episodes 2 and 4 of The Crusade, Season 2. Everything except Episode 3 of Galaxy 4. The entire episode of Mission to the Unknown, which is a very rare for this time period standalone episode. It was the prequel to the Daleks Master Plan. All of the Myth Makers, all of the Daleks Master Plan, except for Episodes 2, 5, and 10, all of the Massacre, all but Episode 4 of the Celestial Toymaker, all of the Savages, all of the Smugglers, and Episode 4 of the Tenth Planet, minus the regeneration scene of Bill Hartnell to Patrick Troughton. Then we go into the second Doctor. We are missing all of the Power of the Daleks, all of the Highlanders, Episodes 1 and 4 of the Underwater Menace, Episodes 1 and 3 of the Moon Base, all of the Macra Terror, all but Episodes 1 and 3 of the Faceless Ones, all but Episode 2 of the Evil of the Daleks, all but Episode 2 of the Abominable Snowman, Episodes 2 and 3 of The Ice Warriors. Episode 3 of The Web of Fear. All of Fury from the Deep. All but Episodes 3 and 6 of The Wheel in Space. Episodes 1 and 4 of The Invasion. And all but Episode 2 of The Space Pirates. In total, we are missing 6 Season 1 stories and 10 Season 2 stories. But then we get into the third Doctor. All the episodes of John Pertwee's run as the Doctor exist in the BBC archive, but some of the episodes only exist as black and white film prints recovered from overseas broadcasters. Though filmed in color, most of the world's broadcasters did not then transmit in color, requiring BBC Enterprises to provide black and white prints for overseas sales. An improvement of colorization technology resulted in all of John Pertwee's episodes being, for all practical purposes, recovered, unlike the 1960s missing episodes. 
but they ended up being the most complicated to outline as there have been many versions of some of them since the color restoration process began in the early 1990s. Although I'm sure with AI now, you can, like, make the colorization much better. Although, who's to say, considering all the times we've used Let's Enhance.io? I don't want to see John Pertwee with ten fingers on one hand. It's bad enough we saw McLean Stevenson with eight fingers or seven fingers on one hand or whatever. For the missing episodes, like, what do you do to... Like, experience these episodes. Well, like we said, all the episodes have their audio soundtrack survive. Now, there are telesnap reconstructions available for some of the stories that are in DVD that have, like, an episode or two missing. Like with the Web of Fear episode 3 we mentioned. But also, fan groups like Loose Cannon Productions have reconstructed missing episodes using original camera scripts to match telesnaps and other visual material to the surviving audio tracks. Although these technically infringe copyright, these recons have generally been tolerated by the BBC, provided they are not sold for profit. So they have to have that not-for-sale-or-rent sort of disclaimer? Something like that. And also, some of the episodes that are missing have been animated. Producers of the Doctor Who DVD range have commissioned original black-and-white animation synced to the program's original audio tracks. Early commissions served to complete serials with one or two missing episodes, allowing the full serials to be sold as a commercial product. Later, BBC Worldwide and BBC America commissioned a full animation of The Power of the Daleks, Patrick Troughton's first story as the Doctor, for broadcast and commercial release. And I remember the animation for the power of the Daleks being a big deal. I actually did go like in November of 2016 to a Fabum event for the power of the Daleks. And that was like something else. To go to a movie theater to watch an animation of a Doctor Who missing story. And it was the first Doctor Who story to actually be animated by the BBC themselves. Because remember, we had... The Reign of Terror, which was Planet 55 with Big Finish. Big Finish did Galaxy 4, and the 10th planet was also done by Planet 55. What notable, do you know who animated episodes 1 and 4 of The Invasion? Cosgrove Hall Films, it looks like. Yes, and you know what that means. Are we going to talk about Count Duckula and Danger Mouse now? Yes! (laughs) So I got a question, guys. Do you think the catering for the animation for the invasion was done by the lunch pack of Notre Dame? I think the silence is your answer. Oh, that's a shame. But yeah, if you do want to listen to some of the audio tracks by themselves without any visuals, like they're available in audiobook form. I've gotten a couple of them on Audible. And I've enjoyed them. I mean, granted, they do have, like, narration to tell you what the hell is actually going on in the stories themselves to help you keep track. Because unlike Big Finish Productions, where it's, like, all audio, like, and as we've done, like, with certain shows, it's like, 
we know that television is like a visual medium as opposed to the audio medium. So whenever we play clips, sometimes it's like hard to understand what's going on. So I'm glad that the BBC has tried to have these missing episodes kind of make sense to the viewer in a way. But yeah, for now, we still got 97 missing episodes out of 253. So, Mike, what's the math? What's the percentage of stuff that's still missing? 38%. Okay, so we have 62% of the 1960s Doctor Who found. The last recovery was, what, 10 years ago? Kind of getting tougher and tougher as we go on to find like anything that's still lost or whatever. But you know what? Hey, stranger things have happened. And anytime we can get a new 1960s episode of Doctor Who, that's a day to celebrate. But until then, the 97... 1960s missing episodes of Doctor Who will remain for now a lost thing on TV. But as Robert Stack said on the top of the show, someone out there knows something. And who knows, maybe if they find something, we'll put the update sounder here. This isn't just limited to Doctor Who. A lot of shows from the early to golden age of television have been lost to time and circumstance due to the wiping process. Not every show on television can be reproduced via the Kenaproto process that NBC likes to brag about. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. But remember... You can always go to our website over at itwasathingontv.com where you can listen to the 427 episodes that preceded this one. And we've got all sorts of great bonuses there, including mini-shows, live shows, extended versions of previous episodes. The whole works. And remember, we are on all social media, including Instagram, Threads, and Mastodon. And it was a thing on TV. Except for Facebook, where we are at It Was A Thing On TV podcast. Remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be streamed. You've heard Apple, TuneIn, iHeart, Audible, etc. And don't forget we are on YouTube where you can like and subscribe to our channel. And don't forget to hit the notification bell on YouTube to be informed of all future uploads on the channel, including what's coming up on the podcast next time. Well, we have one more episode of Doctor Who for the anniversary month. But... That will have to wait another week because you know what's coming up, guys. It's Thanksgiving. And what do we like to do on Thanksgiving? I love a parade. So that's right, folks. We are going back to 1987 to cover the continuity in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. But hold on a second. That's not all. Because we got a listener request. About a year ago, Mike? Yeah, it was like a year ago. Like right after Thanksgiving of last year. And a listener of the podcast told us, you know what, guys? I'm curious. What happened 
in the 1982 Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. So you know what? We decided, you know what? This is the fifth year we're covering the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Why don't we go back a year before the first parade we ever covered on the Pius and talk about the 1982 Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade? So we're going to get the 1987 Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and the 1982 Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. So to paraphrase Kevin Harlan in week 17 of the 2019 NFL season, we're doing both shows! And just as a teaser of what to expect, Spider-Man, Ronald McDonald, Skater Snoopy, and the Snuggle Bear! The Snuggle Bear! Mike, are you excited we're going to talk about the Snuggle Bear next week? He would have debuted around this time. So he was big then. Well, he's still big. But who doesn't love the Snuggle Bear? But also, Chico, we're going to get a parade float with all the characters in the Marvel Universe. That's right, folks. Your holiday doesn't start until you listen to the next two episodes. Of it was a thing on TV. Books say so. For Greg, for Mike, I'm Chico. Thank you so much for listening. Please be kind to one another, and we will see you for the next one. Wow! Guys, I think it's time to debut a new segment. We mentioned it last week. You know what? Let's go for it. Let's do This Week in Match Game Hollywood Square's History. It's time for This weekend Match Game, Hollywood Square, Our History. So this is going to sort of be like the Bicentennial Minute, kind of, sort of, but without big celebrities. But we're going to talk about all of our favorites from Match Game Hollywood Squares. Now, the first two weeks, we didn't cover that, but... Hey, we missed people like the guy who looked like Ricky Schroeder. You remember him? I remember him. Oh, yeah. Gary. Let's not forget, guys. Hashtag Gary was robbed. Gary was robbed, yes. And we also had Twyla Littleton on the first week, and she never appeared again. And we had Shannon Tweed on the second week. And we had Bonnie Urseth one of our favorites on the second week. And Ed Begley Jr., he took time out of his TARDIS to be on the second week, but now we're on the third week. And the third week had, among other people, Jamie Widows, beloved around here, and this was actually his birth week. So he actually got to celebrate his birthday on Match Game Hollywood Squares. But in terms of happenings that week, and we are talking about the week of... November 14th to the 18th of 1983. The big thing to happen that week on the Tuesday and Wednesday shows. So we're talking the 15th and 16th of November. A gentleman by the name of Blaze DeRocco won the $30,000 back to back. Or as we call him, we don't call him Blaze around here. We call him Greg. Magnificent beard guy. Because he had a magnificent beard. He won just those two episodes, but he left with almost $63,000 in cash. And that's this week in Match Game Hollywood Square's Our History. 
We'll see you next week for week four. Meanwhile. Hello, we are the Scottish Falsetto Sock Puppet Time Lords, and so am I, and so is he. So, Doctor, are you talking to someone? Yeah, who? That's right. So, Doctor, who? That's what I said. So, Doctor, you have been sorry. This guy we're talking to is who exactly? Exactly. So, exactly, exactly. Got it. So, Doctor Exactly, you have been... No, 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 not Doctor Exactly. Not Doctor Exactly, not Doctor Exactly. No. So, Doctor, no, you have been... Can you leave this to me? Doctor, what do you have to... Doctor, what? No. Doctor, comma, what do you have to say for yourself? Give me a thought channel and I'll show you some of the evils I've been fighting against. The quarks. Quark? Isn't that a sort of cream cheese? I think it is. That's not much of a defence, that, is it? He could mean co-work. Co-work? You mean? Yes. K-work. Kirsty Wark, who appears in the Sontaran story The Poison Sky in about 40 years from now when we're all dead. Yes. Maybe he's gone back in time and destroyed Kirsty Wark. Sorry, Doctor, that's really actually quite a bad thing. Yes. Bad, bad. Doctor, exactly. Who? What? Then there was a Yeti. Yeti? Yeti, another rubbish excuse if you ask me. <laughs> did you see what I did there? Yes, I see. You asked me to justify my actions. I am doing so. Let me show you the Ice Warriors. Cruel Martian invaders. They tried to conquer the Earth too. Mm, look, an Ice Warrior. It's not that nice. No, 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 an Ice Warrior. Yeah, and I'm saying it's not. If anything, it looks quite nasty. If he'd left it to me, he'd be called a nasty warrior. Then we'd be impressed. Doctor so-called exactly what, where, when, who? That's what I'm talking about. So did the Cybermen. Half creature, half machine. Half man, half biscuit, yes. Doctor, that's all well and half rice, half chips, quite. But Doctor, half gun will travel. Shut up! Ooh, you're not like this when we're polishing Rassilon's rods together. Worst of all, with the... Yeah, 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 we've, we've seen them and... For copyright reasons, I don't think we need to see them again. Yeah, we get your point, though. Good point. Well made, Doctor. Whatever. All these evils I have fought, while you have done nothing but observe. Blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Yeah, talk to the hand. Listen, Doctor, there's a lot of evil things out there, and we don't like to get our hands dirty. Well, we don't have any hands. Good point. So, thinking it through, you might be okay. What, what do you mean, that you're going to let me go free? You seem to, Doctor, you, no, Doctor, space, gap, comma, pause. You seem to spend a lot of time on the planet Earth in quarries. Yeah, yes, I suppose that's true. Earth seems more vulnerable than others, yes. So, we're going to send you back there. Oh, good. In exile. In exile? In exile. In exile? Yeah, like we said, in, in ex exile. You don't have to keep repeating it. Stop repeating it. Sounds like you don't know what the phrase means if you keep repeating it like that. Oh. So we're going to send you to Earth in exile. In exile? You had to start him off again, didn't you? Yes, in that word. Is it a sort of car? Yes, it's a sort of car. You will be sent to Earth in the 1970s. In exile? Yeah, I'm beginning to regret this. It will be the 1970s, though some people might pretend it's the 1980s, you know, with trim phones and miniskirts and male prime ministers called Jeremy. You just
play along there. But you, you can't condemn me to exile on, on one primitive planet in, in, in one century in time. Besides, I, I'm known on the earth. It, it might be very awkward for me. True, he will get a lot of people coming up to him saying, didn't you used to be Patrick Troughton? Ah, but don't worry about that. After a while, it'll be, weren't you that bloke in the omen? And then it'll be, aren't you the granddad of that fella out of Robin Hood? By which time, you won't really be that bothered. But just to be on the safe side, we'll change your face. You can't just change what I look like without consulting me. I think you'll find we can. Here, I've got a pattern book. Um, you can have different sizes of face. We've got faces in small, medium and large. Of course, if you want one in XL... In exile? Yeah, we'd have to order that. Which of these do you fancy? Oh, he's too old. But he's too fat, isn't he? No, he's too thin. Yes, that one's too young. Oh, no, that won't do at all. This ridiculous. He has got a point. Leave it. Doctor, you're wasting time. Just stand there in front of that rotating prism and pull a funny face, would you? What's happening? How are you doing with your casting decisions? I'm on the case. Eeny, meeny, miny. Oh, yes, Wurzel Gummidge. It could be you. Roll the credits. Bang.